Amen. Well, we have been in a series called United for the last couple weeks, and today we're wrapping that series up. Last week, Pastor Brandon Hare brought an incredible message on unity together, unity in our relationships, and if you missed that, you should go back and watch it online. It really, it was a great message, and today I want to finish this series by talking about what it means to be a people who are united in our mission. United in our mission. The first week of this series I read from John chapter 17. John chapter 17 finds Jesus in a difficult place. It's a big night for Jesus. Uh, it's Thursday night of the Passion Week. And the Passion Week is the, G- is the week that Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so this is Thursday night. And on this night, he has the Last Supper with the disciples. And, b- and when they get to the upper room and the, the table is prepared for the Last Supper, when they get there, Jesus washes everybody's feet. He, he takes his uh, outer layer off and wraps it around his waist as a towel and begins to wash everybody's feet to teach them about humility and serving others and how to serve people and love people sacrificially. That night during dinner, Judas would leave early from this Passover feast to go and betray Jesus, something Jesus knew was going to happen. And then after dinner, they get up and they're all full. They're lounging around and they talk for a little while at the table and they get up and they work their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has this moment of prayer, knowing that this is the place where he would be arrested and taken and tried and crucified the next morning. And so... He's having these big, important prayers, and we see this recorded in the Gospels. And in John chapter 17, we get a look at these final prayers of Jesus. And you just have to understand how important this is. Imagine that these are the prayers that Jesus prayed before he was crucified. The the value, the importance of what he had to say in these moments are the true and honest and real desires of his heart. So he prays for different things, and then he prays for the disciples, the 12 disciples who were with him at that Last Supper. And after he prays for the disciples, he turns his attention to those who would come after them, it says, which is you and me. He says a prayer for us, and so... If you've ever wondered what it is that Jesus would pray for you if he was praying for you, you get your answer in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. It says, My prayer is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, me and you, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. We've got to understand how important unity is to the heart of Jesus. The last prayer that Jesus would pray for you and I that would be recorded in Scripture is about our ability to love one another. Unity with one another. And the way that our unity reflects Him to the world around us. Jesus wants us to understand that as His followers, we would be called to love and pray even for our enemies. For those who are in His kingdom and on mission with us, 
we need to do more than just pray for each other, more than just love each other, but we've got to show each other that love through unity, and we've got to be united on the mission that we're called to. He prays for you and I that we would be united and unified so that the world would know that we are His. Our unity is a clear expression of the gospel to the world around us. So how do we love each other and live in unity to fulfill this wish of Christ? What does it look like? It's so important for us to get this right because a divided world needs a united church. A united church stands in such contrast to the divisive world around us that it leads people to the gospel when we're united and when we even show kindness to one another. It attracts people to the gospel. Paul says it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance and it's reflected through the people who serve Him. There is another way that we can go which divides the church and pushes the world away. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. We work hard to live in peace and in unity with one another and to take bitterness out of our hearts. In the first week of this series, I talked about our need to overlook offenses and not carry them around with us. We talked about forgiveness and moving forward without letting these things into our hearts. Because if we let offense and division and bitterness into our hearts, it affects everything around us. Bitter roots lead to bitter fruits. Bitterness moves from our hearts into every aspect of our lives until it becomes visible. Have you ever met someone who's so bitter it looks like they just start every single day with a nice tall glass of lemon juice? They wear their bitterness around like a cashmere sweater. They, they put it out there for everyone to see and brag about it. And every conversation that they have ends or begins with something that they are bitter about. And here's the biggest problem with this. Oftentimes, where do you find people like that on a Sunday morning? At church. Infighting, bitterness, pettiness, division. Oftentimes, Christians are just as bad about this or even worse than the world around us. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we are called to live in complete unity. Our unity is supposed to separate us from the world around us. The ways of Jesus set us apart from the world, and unity is a clear way of Jesus that we're meant to follow. So here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about staying united in our mission and understanding that unity does not mean uniformity. Unity does not mean uniformity. Here's a reality that we have to understand. In life, you are going to come into contact with people who you disagree with on many, many issues. It is even going to happen in the context of church. 
So how do we respond and act and interact when we are called to be united with someone who sees the world differently than I do, who thinks differently than I do, who, who has different desires, wants, and dreams than the ones that I carry? I want to talk about two figures from the book of Acts today. Paul and Barnabas. His friends called him Barney. Acts is the sequel to the Gospels and tells the story of the church being formed and spread all over the known world in the first century. It was written by the same person as the Gospel of Luke. And so if you read the Gospel of Luke, then you get into Acts and you're kind of just carrying the story forward. Luke's written both of these stories and Throughout the beginning of Acts, we see the continued adventures of Peter and John and some of the other disciples, the apostles of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 8, we have a story of a man being martyred named Stephen. Now to be martyred means to be killed for what you believe in. And Stephen was the first Christian martyr. His story is in Acts chapter 8. And there... In this story, approving of Stephen's killing is a man named Saul. Saul is a Pharisee. He's a religious teacher who is pursuing and persecuting Christians. Now, being a Pharisee was a very prestigious and powerful position in Jewish life. It means that Saul came from a well-respected Jewish family, and maybe even his father was a Pharisee or a priest as well. Um, Saul would have been trained in Judaism with a special emphasis on Levitical law and Pharisaical law. Uh, and These are Pharisaical laws or laws that were added to the laws of Leviticus as kind of a guardrail to keep people from breaking Levitical laws. And it started with one or two, but then all the 600 or so laws in Leviticus had two or three laws around each of them to keep people from getting close. It's a lot of laws. He would have started learning these when he was kindergarten age. Around five years old, your training as a Pharisee begins. And so Saul has been on this path as long as he can remember learning and being poured into and being taught and being raised up in the church. When he was about middle school age, he would have been connected to a rabbi, which would have been a a, a prestigious teacher. In Saul's case, it was probably a very well-known rabbi. And that rabbi would mentor and invest and pour into, I just got a sliver from my uh, desk, I'll be okay, owie. Um, That rabbi would have poured into Paul and sown his beliefs into Paul or Saul, and Saul would have grown to develop his own along that process. It was this lifelong process to becoming a Pharisee. Once you hit the kind of Pharisee world, depending on who you are, what kind of gifts you have, the way that people listen to you or, or follow you, you would have rise in prominence. By the time we meet Saul... He's a very prominent Pharisee. He's devoted his entire life to this. Acts chapter 9 tells us that Saul met Jesus and his life radically changed forever as a result. 
He changes his name to Paul and he begins to spend time with other believers. In fact, he's on his way to a town called Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians. And the Christians in Damascus, they caught word that he was coming so that they could hide and and make sure that he didn't find them. And they kind of went underground. But on his way there, he encountered Jesus and became a follower of Jesus. And so God prepares one of the believers in Damascus to receive him, but There's this whole dynamic where he comes into this town as a new believer and nobody really trusts him. They don't know what to do with him. He spends a little bit of time doing ministry there and sharing the gospel there. And he does a little bit of that here and there. Spends some time with the apostles. Spends some time with the believers. But the reality is that when he was a Pharisee, he stood sharply against the way of Jesus. It was Pharisees that led the call to have Jesus crucified, and now they were leading the way in Christian persecution. It tells us in Acts that the killing of Stephen, who was martyred in Acts chapter 8, that Saul oversaw, was a trigger event that led to persecutions all over the region. And people knew that Saul was behind all of that. His reputation preceded him everywhere that he went. It became an obstacle to the ministry that he felt called to do. And so after he spent some time learning and being with believers, the Bible tells us that he returned to... I'm going to get it. Got it. It's better. After he spent some time with believers and doing some ministry, the Bible tells us that he returned to his hometown, Tarsus. And in Tarsus, he most likely picked up a regular job. He became a tent maker and learned how to just provide for himself. And that's kind of where we we leave him for a little while. Now, there's another guy in the story named Barnabas. And Barnabas is a very different kind of guy. Uh, He's a Hellenistic Jew which means that he was born to wealthy Jewish parents on the Greek island of Cyprus. A Hellenistic Jew is a Jewish person who has Greek influences in their life. They're growing up and and being raised around Greek culture and in Greek cities. And so they've got kind of a a different uh, vibe that they carry around with them. His world was at its roots Jewish, but it was filled with these Greek influences. If Saul was the hardcore fundamental Baptist, Barnabas was the trendy non-denominational megachurch guy. His real name was Joseph, but everyone called him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He was the kind of guy that when you got around him, he just lifted your spirits no matter what kind of mood you were in. You would try to be grumpy around Barnabas, but he would not have it. He would, he would speak vision into your life. He would speak, you'd be having a regular conversation about what you might do on a Thursday night and Barnabas would lock eyes with you and say, God has got a dream for your heart and for your life that's so big in Jesus' name. And people would just get up and start getting saved all around him. That's who he was. He was so good at encouragement, so good at making people feel seen and wanted and valued in Jesus' name that they changed his name from Joseph to Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He was a force 
to be around. He was generous. Acts chapter 4 tells us that when he fully gave his life to Jesus, that he sold everything that he had and poured it into the church and poured it into the ministry of the church. That's how we're introduced to Barnabas. He is an incredible uh, person and the kind, of, the kind of person that people just wanted to be around. Saul, in the beginning, was kind of like that guy that began his day with the glass of lemon juice. I picture him a little bit grouchy until he gets captured in Jesus' name, but not Joseph, not Barnabas. Barnabas is the life of the party. He is fun, he is a joy, and he encourages everyone that he is around. Saul and Barnabas are two very, very different people. Now, Barnabas and Saul and Saul's stories intersect in Acts chapter 11. At this time, Barnabas has been serving the church for a few years while Paul has just been studying and serving, but at home in Tarsus. Uh, He's spent some time learning from the apostles, but he's really just kind of adjusting to his radically new way of life. Look at Acts 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. This is your reminder that Paul initiated this event. So we are talking about the believers scattering in fear and going all over, and it is happening because of a... Global persecution that began at the hands of Saul, who would become Paul. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Barnabas is from Cyprus. Cyprus is this Greek island. And the benefit to Barnabas being one of the people to go there is language and culture. While the people from Judea spoke some Greek, it was the international trade language, their main language would have been Aramaic. And so they were working on a second language, whereas Barnabas was working from his first language. It was also a culture and a world that he had grown up in and understood intimately. His ability to share the gospel with the people of Cyprus was perfect because he was one of them. And so we see that in this and It says, verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. God is doing a move. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, which is another Greek city. It's in modern day Turkey uh, at the coast, southern Turkey on the coast, Uh, but it's a Greek city at the time. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Verse 25, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. I think when we're reading through the stories in the book of Acts, oftentimes we probably glass over 
verse 25 here, but I believe that verse 25 is one of the more important verses in the New Testament because this act, what happens here, determines the rest of history. Saul of Tarsus is at home in Tarsus making tents, but God had a bigger dream for him. God was going to use him to write the letters to explain the gospel that would spark revival across the world for thousands of years to come. And it happens because Barnabas the encourager is doing ministry and he says, I want to have Saul with me. And he goes to Tarsus where Saul is making tents and says, God wants to use you in a mighty way. Come with me to Antioch. One of the greatest benefits of being a part of community is that within these Walls here in this community are people that are going to look at you and speak into your future in such a way that would unlock what God is going to do for the rest of your life. Verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. What happens here in Antioch is the basis for the Gentile church in many ways. Gentile means non-Jewish. For the non-Jewish church in many ways. At this time, the apostles, uh, the 12 disciples or the 11, those who remain, are spreading the gospel to Gentile areas. Um, people who are not Jewish, but they are then bringing them back to Jerusalem or to a nearby synagogue where a church is established and growing along among formerly Jewish people or Jewish people who've accepted Jesus. Paul and Barnabas spent a year in Antioch establishing a flourishing church here in this place. They were working together side by side and Paul was learning from Barnabas. Acts chapter 13 carries on the story. It says in verse 1, Now in the church at Antioch there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And when they arrived at, looks to me like Salamis, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. And John Mark was with them as their helper. And this is why I wanted to talk about this passage today. We all love to see ourselves in the pages of Scripture. So this is actually a story about me. John Mark was with them as their helper. This is what's known as Paul's first missionary journey. It is a landmark moment in the New Testament because this first missionary journey of Paul, Paul and Barnabas, would lay the groundwork for the church spreading from Judea to Samaria and then the ends of the earth, as Jesus called them to do. They're taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and planting and growing and developing churches there. 
In this first journey, we see that Paul's role in the beginning is in powerful moves of the Holy Spirit. He's casting out demons. He's healing. He's teaching different aspects of theology to people. And in this journey, we see that it's Barnabas who does most of the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. John Mark is just happy to be along for the ride. He's just there. He's their assistant. He's actually not happy to be along for the ride, and we'll get to that later. And so here, in the book of Acts, we have this pairing of two wildly different people working together to build the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. And I believe that Paul and Barnabas teach us some very important lessons in unity. And so a couple things. When we are united, we can be united in mission, but different in gifting. Here's the reality. Just because we have the same worldview doesn't mean that we're going to see the world the same way. If you and I believe in Jesus, that means we have the same worldview, a biblical worldview. We are moving towards the way of Jesus. We are working to be with him, to become like him, and to do what Jesus did. However, our pathways and the journey that we take to get there and what that looks like for me versus what that looks like for you can be very different things. That's okay. You may love the creative side of ministry, the lights, the production, the art, the music, the environment. Those things maybe make you light up inside, fill you with joy and fulfillment. And I may love the intellectual side of ministry, learning all about theology and church history and the deep backstories of all those who have helped move the gospel forward. And a mature follower of Jesus understands that for there to be completion in the gospel, both are necessary. Paul has been trying to help us understand this since the very beginning. Here's what he wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone it is the same God at work. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If we were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one another. And if one part suffers... Every part suffers with it. And if one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it. We need all kinds in order for us to be a body. 
there has to be gifts and, and passions and dreams from all different walks of life in order for us to be what we are called to be in Jesus' name. We're not just supposed to be a big old ear walking around, everybody exactly the same, doing the same thing, loving the same things, liking the same things, moving in the same directions. Rather, we're meant to be a kaleidoscope of gifts and talents and abilities coming together as the body of Christ so that we can be Christ to the world around us. I need your passion for serving the community to come alongside my passion for building the church. I need your gifting in, in music to accompany my gifting for communication. I need your hospitality gift to go along with my prayer gift. We have got to have one another. We are united in our mission even when we are different in our gifting. Ten years ago, we were planning to start this church. And the reality is, if you know me, I'd probably be just fine with some wood-paneled walls and a flickering fluorescent light and just talking about the deeper theologies of the Bible and going deep into the histories and the backstories of everything that the Bible has to give. I wouldn't even notice the light flickering, but I knew that we were called to reach people in Jesus' name, and that in order to do that, it wasn't about what I liked, it was about what might draw somebody into the power and the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, and so what I did was I went and found somebody very different than me. I knew a guy named Robert Knight, and Robert Knight is so gifted, and so he loves the creative arts and the creative ministries and all the production things that go into building an incredible worship environment, his Wife April is an incredible artist, and I knew that if their desire and their, their dream and their passion to serve the arts and to bring creative ministries into reality and my passion to see the gospel and the, and the theology and all the, the backstories of everybody came into place, that together we could be the body of Christ. And so we needed each other. I think... If we remain united in our mission and different in our gifting, we look a whole lot more like we were meant to look. we got to keep out of this trap of thinking that what I love is better than what you love. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Oftentimes, our passions blind us to our need for diversity. It's like how I love the Southeast. Y'all, I believe this is God's chosen land. Where I live is the best place on the earth. I can't even fathom what it would be like to live somewhere where when you order a sweet tea, they say, I could bring you an iced tea and some sugar. <laughs> that is not a sweet tea. Get out of here. Get out of here with that. I believe we live in the Garden of Eden. It's perfect and it's everything I could ever want. I do not like the desert. I do not like frozen places. I do not understand what draws people to those environments. But here's what I know. I know that biodiversity is important for our planet and our economy. I know that other cultures light people up the same way that this culture lights me up. I know that the world needs us and our differences are a part of it. I know that my gifts and your gifts can't be the same because God needs a completed body to do the mission he's called the church to do. Do not let your different gifting cause division, but rather open up your eyes to a need for something that is whole. Second thing is this. 
We need to be united in community, even if we're different in creation. United in community and different in creation. Here's what I mean. Not everyone you meet at church or in the context of Christianity is going to think the same way as you and like the same things that you like. I love Star Wars and The Lord of the Rings. I love it so much. I will talk to you about either franchise for literal hours. We will lose the track of day. Whatever we have scheduled the rest of the day, forget about it. It's over now. I'll sit here. I want to talk to you about the thousand-year Sith War. I want to, I want to discuss uh, the deeper meaning behind the duel of fates with you. I want to talk about Morgoth and the Silmarils. I want to have a conversation about Manway, the great eagle. I want to talk about the creation song for Middle Earth. Y'all, I want to go deep. Only the real nerds in the room caught any of that. But those are my favorite things. Now get this. The person in this room who understood any of that less than any of you is my wife. Rail has no idea who Manway the Great Eagle is. She's never heard of Morgoth. She doesn't even know the tale of Darth Pelagius the Wise. I know. It's crazy. How is it? That we have been happily married for seven years and married for 13. That was a joke. That was a joke. (laughs) Sometimes we get into community and we have this expectation that everyone in community is going to think exactly like me. Is going to want what I want. Is going to look like me. Is going to sound like me. Is going to, we're going to just be in unison all the time. Unity isn't unison. And unity isn't uniformity. And I, I think, you know, sometimes maybe we pull our expectations for that from the Bible. It says in Acts 2.44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Maybe we read that and think, well, we're supposed to have everything in common. So why is it that, that you're a Harry Potter fan and I'm a Lord of the Rings fan, other than the fact that I received the gospel at an earlier age? That was another joke, and I'm sorry. <laughs> how, do I, how do I reconcile that? If we are believers, we're supposed to have everything in common. How do I reconcile that verse with my marriage? How do I reconcile that verse with my small group? Well, taking verses out of context is fun, but here's what this passage about community really says. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. And they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had a need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And they broke bread in their homes. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And here's what you've got to understand. that They're not talking about everybody having everything in common because they all liked all the same things. There are Jews and Gentiles and fishermen and Pharisees. There are people from all different walks of life in this group of the early church. And it's the very beginning of church. This is Acts chapter 2, at the beginning of Acts chapter 
chapter 2, Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit fills believers for the first time. And now they are operating as one, as the church, with the Holy Spirit unifying them and bringing them together and using that power and their belief in the gospel to just serve one another and to do life with one another and to share with and to provide for and to care for one another. And as a result of that, it says that daily people were being saved. It doesn't say that there was an incredible sermon preached and then um, daily people were being saved. It says that they were unified. They were one. They were together despite their differences. And because of their unity, daily people were being saved. They didn't have their interests in common. They shared their lives with one another. They were on mission together. They believed God could use them together. They served the bride of Christ together. If I am called to build the local church and you are called to serve the poor, we are made to complete the body together, united in community. Don't let your differences cause division. Expect the people in your community to be different than you, to think differently than you, to see the world differently than you. Learn from it. Celebrate what you share, the gospel. Do life together when it makes sense and don't force it when it doesn't. Which brings me to my last point because the reality is sometimes we have got to have differences in the body. It's what makes the body great. Different giftings, different personalities, different passions, different dreams is what makes the body of Christ great. But occasionally, Moments come up where there is conflict between us, where there is something so different in me than exists in you that we can no longer stay in community together and fight for unity, which is when it may be time to be united in purpose and different in place. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch planting churches for a little over a year. Then they travel the region doing the same. And a, a lot of really amazing things take place because these two men who are very different are united on the mission they've been called to. And at one point during their mission, John Mark leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. We don't get a lot of information about why or anything else. It's just kind of a statement in the middle of the story where you're just kind of like, okay, John Mark's, he left. But in Acts chapter 15, we find out why it's mentioned in the story. This moment was apparently a point of serious contention between Paul and Barnabas. Two very different. Barnabas, a man of extreme grace and encouragement and care. And Paul, someone who understood the law better than anyone. Truth was so important too. Sometimes the way that we see the world and things God created us to be passionate about cause us to have a really hard time seeing eye to eye with others on the same mission. Something about the way that John Mark left rubbed Paul the wrong way to the point where he doesn't want to work with him again. Here's the passage. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back to visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord to see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Something happens here that causes these guys to go in different directions. But here's what you need to see. 
they go in different directions on the same mission. They go in different directions on the same mission. They had a disagreement. And it caused them to grow apart. But they did it God's way. The reality is, for us, sometimes we're going to have the same moments. Sometimes the best way for us to be united in mission is to serve in different directions. Sometimes, when you can no longer get along, it may be time to move along. That's okay. When we do so in a way that honors one another, that honors the work that you do and the work that I'm going to do, when we do so in a way that allows God to be a part of this process, restoration is possible. When God is not involved, division is our default. Paul and Barnabas go in different directions, but they do so believing the other still has a mission in Jesus' name. And they do so in a way that honors one another. Paul references Barnabas later as he writes a letter to the Corinthians just talking about how incredible of a believer he is. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, in a letter to a pastor named Timothy, Paul writes this. This is a couple decades later. It says, Luke alone is with me, so get John Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. When I'm having a bad day, I just read that out of context. At some point in this period of time, this is many, many years later, Paul's towards the end of his ministry, and he's asking John Mark to come and help him in that ministry. So at some point, Paul and John Mark's relationship was restored. Restore, restored even to the point where they began to work together again. If we go in different directions, God's way, in a way that honors one another, where we just are fixated and focused on serving the mission of God, restoration is possible. When we do it our way, division is the default. We've got to understand that we do not have to see eye to eye in order to remain heart to heart. We don't need to have uniformity in order to have unity. There has to be differences in the body of Christ. This is what it means to be the church. It means that God takes this great, beautiful kaleidoscope of who I am and who you are and weaves us together, united on mission, on purpose in Jesus' name to change and to transform a city that you've got to be gifted differently than me so that we can be complete in the body of Christ together. And it's an incredible thing when, we, when we're able to be united in that way despite our differences. When we know that everyone in my small group does not have to tolerate my hour-long conversations about Lord of the Rings. That it's okay when we disagree, when we believe, when we like different things. And then, as followers of Jesus, when we disagree to the point where we cannot carry on together, we stay united on mission and we honor God in different directions. Unity is important to God because it shows the world that we're different than the world, that we belong to Him. And because unity is important to God, it has to be important to us. Even when it's hard, it is worth fighting for. If we can't love each other, what hope does the world have that we can love them? And so if you're in this space today and you've just not been a part of this move of God, not been a part of the church or even not been a part of Christianity because you've seen too much division, too much hurt, too much disunity. I want you to know that that's not 
who the church is. That the church is unity. Working together in Jesus' name. And if you'd like to be a part of that, be a part of what God is building here at this church, then you can begin with just a conversation by just accepting the gift that God has already offered you through His Son, Jesus. With every head bowed, every eye closed, it just starts with a prayer. And the prayer, you just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trying to do it on my own. I believe in you and that you are who you say you are. And all that I am from this day forward, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen.